and we're going to read uh, from Mark 4:35 through to Mark 5:20. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, "Let us go over to the other side." Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There they also, sorry. There there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Chapter 5 They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough even to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went out into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had, been, who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Good morning, everybody. If uh, you're following along on your Bibles, keep them open. Uh, any re relevant verses and things, I'll pop them up on the screen as well. But it is good to have your heads 
in the scriptures as well as we work our way through, because not everything will be on the screen, and is a way of you thinking through some of the stuff we're going to talk about today as well. But as we dive in, let me pray and ask for God's help with what we have before us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would settle our hearts. Father, as we work our way through this text, Lord, may the worries of the week past and the week ahead, Lord, please subside for this moment. Father, by your Spirit, help us to focus on you and your glory. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, way, way, way back, I wouldn't say when the world was black and white, I'm not quite that old, but when the world was close to being black and white, uh, I was a Boy Scout. And Scouts, these were some of the most formative years of my life. I grew and learned quite a lot during this period of my life. And I have many memories of my Scouting years. One of the things that I remember most vividly, perhaps, was the first time that I ever went abseiling. My friends and I, we were taken to this wooden tower. We were strapped into harnesses. We had helmets put on our heads. We climbed to the top of the stairs, and once everything was checked and double-checked, we were told to stand at the edge of this tower and to lean back and slowly walk our way down, kind of like Spider-Man. Now, all was well. All my friends went down. I was watching them from the bottom at one point going, oh, this is fine. This is kind of easy looking, actually. But then as they began to check the harness on me, kind of tighten it a little bit more, making sure everything was good to go, I started to have some doubts about the whole thing. Uh, I don't remember if I said any of this out loud uh, or if I simply thought this in my head, but I was kind of going, is this tight enough? Is this actually going to hold me in? Um, where, where do I put my hands? What am I meant to do here? Oh, that tower's really tall. Are they sure this is safe? And then my turn came along. And I walked to the edge of the tower and they told me to turn around. So my back was facing this massive drop and that's when reality really kicked in and fears began to take control. Uh, it was in that moment, that first abseil down, that I had a bit of a crisis of faith. I knew it was safe. Uh, I knew full well that everything was good to go, but all of the knowledge up here didn't really translate to a knowledge down here. When my faith in the harness and the leaders was put to the test, I started having some doubts. Particularly that the biggest doubt was looking down and that vertigo hitting in going, that's a long way. There is a sense in which no matter how much I knew, it wasn't until I had to walk the talk and do all the things that I'd convinced myself were easy only a moment ago that I started having some doubts. Uh, it's easy to show faith when you're safe on the ground, when you're watching others come down. But it, when it was my turn to abseil, when I was in this kind of miniature storm, yeah, it's a little bit different. It was in that moment that the genuineness of my trust was revealed to some extent, and it was, in fact, a brief moment of fear. And I was forced into a decision. Do I trust this or do I not? Do I lean back and go down or do I not? Now, in this chapter of Mark here today, the ante, it's ratcheted up quite a bit from abseiling. What we're given are two examples of actual life-threatening situations. So on the one hand, we have a storm that swamps a boat full of Jesus' disciples, and it threatens to drown each and every one of them. And on the other hand, as we skip to chapter 5, we see a man with a ferocious internal storm, you could call it, that terrorizes and threatens his soul. But here's the amazing thing. While Mark records for us these two examples of terrifying, life-threatening situations, 
it's not actually the storms themselves that generate the most fear among the people in these narratives. Right? It's not the waves that are swamping the boat, threatening to drown everyone, that leave the disciples most terrified at the end of the story. Nor is it the demon-possessed man who, if you read, he possesses this kind of superhuman strength. He can break every shackle that he's been strapped in day and night. He, he screams among the tombs. He generates a lot of fear among the other people watching on. And yet the greater fear that grips the people over the other side of the sea is a fear of who Jesus is, a fear of the power and authority he possesses as they see this man now sitting in his right mind. If you look with me at, at 4.41, we can see this fear. So after Jesus calms the storm, we read that the disciples were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're no longer fearful of the storm. That, that pales in comparison to this man on the boat who supernaturally silenced the forces of nature with a word. Likewise, after Jesus heals a man possessed by many demons, the local townspeople, they come out, and they're more terrified by a man now sitting in his right mind as a result of Jesus' power than they are of the fact that he once lived among the tombs. He's screaming, cutting himself, breaking apart shackles and chains and terrorizing everyone. No, they're far more terrified seeing him now Content, sitting, dressed in his right state of mind because of what Jesus has done for him. We read in, in 5.14, those tending the pigs, and we'll talk about the pigs in a moment, those tending the pigs, they ran off and reported this, the healing of the demon-possessed man. They reported this in the town and the countryside, and when the people came out to see what had happened, uh, they saw when they came to Jesus, they saw a man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is what the presence of God himself does to people. And so as we read the text today, we need to be careful not to oversimplify today's passage. We want to be careful not to apply this to our lives too quickly to make this uh, a sermon all about Jesus getting us through our storms in life or anything like that. Rather, I want us to slow down and hopefully see something much richer and deeper from this text going on here. You see, these stories recorded for us, they're here not to point us to ourselves and our peril, but to point us to Jesus and who he is. They're to point us to Jesus as the Lord, particularly God himself in the flesh, who has all glory, all majesty, all dominion, all authority before all time, now and forever. This is the man who stood in their midst, whether they knew it or not at the time. That is who Jesus is. The very presence of Jesus calming these two storms, the outward and the inward, they're all here to push everyone in the text and all of us in the room this morning to reconsider the authority of this man that we worship in our own lives. Now, if you cast your mind uh, briefly back to last week's sermon, now, if you weren't here, I'll give you a quick recap. Jesus, he's on a boat and he's preaching. He's giving many, many parables from his boat. Uh, there were so many people around him that he kind of pushed this out onto sea, so he had a natural amphitheater that he could talk, talk to the people sitting upon the soil about the parable of the soils. And we read now from verse 35 that that day, so the same day after he'd finished all his preaching, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. 
leaving the crowd behind that took him along just as he was in the boat. So he's still there. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So here they are. Jesus has finished his preaching, and at his request, they head across east, across the lake. Now, we're not told why they're going that way. Uh, We're not given the reason Jesus wants to head that way, but I suspect it might have something to do with his desire to preach elsewhere, for that is why he came, if you flick back to 138. Uh, Whatever the reason, though, they're off to non-Jewish territory this time. They're off to pagan territory. But as they make their way there, they're suddenly hindered by this storm, or as the NIV puts it, this furious squall. Uh, Personally, I'm not sure why the editors of the NIV use the word squall. It it, it does mean what it means in there, but I don't think I've ever used this word in my life up until this week. Um, Other translations, they say a great windstorm or just a great storm of wind. Uh, Literally, the original word, it can mean a whirlwind or even a hurricane. At any rate, it's extremely windy. It's extremely wet. Things are very, very bad for the disciples. Waves are crashing over the boat. Uh, Also, this wasn't a Dreamliner, right? This wasn't a catamaran or somewhere with like a little internal section where you can just watch the storm beat against the windows and wait it out. No, this was most likely a a simple Galilean fishing boat, like kind of like a very large tinny, if you can imagine that. What what we have is a picture of a tinny in a hurricane, a furious squall. And we read in verse 37 that they're nearly swamped. The boat was filling up, it was sinking, And so naturally at this point, the disciples start to freak out. It's panic stations on the boat. Now at this point, it also pays to remember, none of these guys on the boat, or a handful of them at least, they weren't amateurs in the water. Many of these were seasoned fishermen. They've been out on this lake many, many times. They know the weather patterns. They've seen everything before, but perhaps not quite everything as they're now fearing for their lives in this storm. And so here they are looking around, perhaps clinging to whatever they can to stay on board as the boat fills up with water. And where do they find Jesus? He's at the back of the boat having a snooze. Teacher, they say, don't you care if we drown? Sleeping through a storm like this, uh, I can't even begin to imagine how that's even really possible, but it is. Uh, But it's not only strange behavior from Jesus... From the disciples' perspective, it's a sign to them that Jesus doesn't care. They're interpreting him sleeping as if he's lost his mind or is utterly indifferent to their safety in an hour of need. Uh, This cry, it's not really a question, but more of a statement of fact. What they're saying is, we're drowning, Jesus, and from what I can tell, you don't seem to care. That's a pretty hefty accusation. Uh, It's not softened up in any way, which to me screams of eyewitness testimony in this gospel. But the interesting thing is, if you know the rest of the gospel story, if you trace all the way forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a bit of an ironic uh, nature to this statement from these disciples, because they're the very same disciples who end up falling asleep on Jesus in his greatest hour of need. Now, obviously, Jesus, he does care about his disciples. He's not going to let them drown. 
Rather, he's about to use this event to reveal something extraordinary about himself to his disciples. In verse 39, we read, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Jesus, he calms this raging ocean simply with words. Now, what we have here, it's not not just as straightforward as that. There is something slightly deeper going on here. You see that this idea of a sea uh, in the Bible, the, the sea or, or the ocean, it's often the embodiment of chaos and destruction and evil, right? It is a force which biblically threatens to undo God's creative and redemptive work. And so along comes Jesus and just as God spoke and created order out of chaos in the beginning of creation, back in Genesis, Jesus does this again here. And to make this point clearer for us, uh, Mark, he subtly personifies this storm for us. Uh, you see, when Jesus talks to the wind and the waves, the reality is he doesn't just talk to them. Uh, we're told in verse 39 that he rebuked them. It's not every day that we, we rebuke inanimate parts of creation. Uh, as much as Annie might tell you that I tend to rebuke our little Google Assistant at home because it's less than helpful on many, many occasions, I've never really rebuked a non-living thing before. But here Jesus does. In fact, this word rebuke, it's the same word that's used for the two exorcisms we saw back in 125 and 312. So in essence, Mark is writing this as if Jesus is performing some kind of exorcism on the sea. He's putting the destructive forces of chaos and evil which threaten to destroy, to undo God's creation. He's putting them back in order, just as God did back in Genesis. There are hints uh, that this guy in the boat, he's much, much more than a man standing among them. In fact, he's much, much more than a man with a couple of superpowers. What Jesus does with this storm is supposed to point to the fact that this is God himself living among them, whether they realize it or not just yet. In fact, if you, uh, you can look at this in your own time. Uh, if you were to put a bookmark in Psalm 107, uh, Psalm 107, if you go down and cast your eyes to the latter part of this psalm, you'll see an almost identical story of God calming the seas here. Right? It is something that is in the Jewish texts. The thing is, in this psalm, though, it is the Lord, it is Yahweh who stills the storm to a whisper. He is the one who hushes the waves of the sea. Now, it's probably not a shocker to many of us in this room to say that Jesus is God, to make that link, to go, oh, look, Jesus has the power of God, therefore he is God. Uh, most of you, when I say that, you're not going to be falling off your chairs going, whoa, my goodness, that's news to me. Most of you know it. Um, it's a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. If Jesus isn't God, then we don't really have anything to stand on. But I do sometimes, I feel I need to, to correct the balance a little bit here, I do sometimes hear and see people talking about Jesus as if he's your best buddy or your best pal. Now, before I point the finger too much, I've made this mistake myself, thinking that, you know, I'm really looking forward to Jesus coming again because there's going to be some kind of awesome party that we have. We can all sing and dance and celebrate and have fun. And I do know that, yes, there is celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents. You get that in Luke 15. But when the full reality, the full unsheathed reality of the divine intersects with us here on earth, 
the reaction we have isn't one of partying. The reaction of the disciples in the boat, their response to Jesus is in fact terror. Now some will say, well, this is the pre-crucified Jesus. You know, when the disciples figure this all out, that terror kind of turns to joy. And that is true. And we'll get to that in a moment. But But even after they do get it, even after it all clicks for them, you do have hints in the New Testament. So Revelation 1.17, for example, when John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, who would have been on that boat with him, upon seeing the risen Lord Jesus, we're told that he fell on his face like a dead man. Reverent fear was his response, and it should be ours too. You see, if Jesus, if he were to walk into this very room, right here, right now, none of us are going to smile and then hand him a notice sheet. We're not going to point out the empty chairs up the front and say, come on in, have some lunch. No, if Jesus walked into this room, we would all fall on our faces before the divine. We would be flat on the ground, worshipping him in reverent fear. His supreme authority and power will have us falling to our faces simply because of who he is. Now, the story doesn't end there. Uh, In fact, the journey, it's only really just begun because they haven't even made it to the other side of the lake just yet. Okay, we've had this kind of interruption in the middle of the lake. In some sense, this is the warm-up act. So as Jesus now gets to the other side, he approaches the land of the Gerasenes, we read in 5.2 that he's immediately met by another man. He's met by a man falling victim to another destructive storm. Only this time, it's a storm going on on the inside. We meet a man possessed by many demons, and the description of this guy that Mark provides for us, uh, it's pretty intense, uh, in fact, I don't think it's going too fast to say if you were to, to read this at its face value, this was printed in a newspaper, for example, it's harrowing. We read in, in verse 3, it says, The man, he lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been bound hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Presumably there would have been a lot of strong people there to do this. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Imagine that's someone you know. This is one of the saddest descriptions of human wretchedness that we really have in the Bible. It's truly, truly awful. And yet Jesus, well, he travels all this way. He goes far outside of Jewish territory to meet someone like this, to meet with outsiders, to meet with a man with this ferocious internal storm in a city full of Gentiles. And one of the things this shows us is that that Jesus, he is willing to go anywhere and everywhere to preach the good news. His ministry in, in many ways goes far beyond just his people. And in fact, at the end of this story... He sends out the first Gentile missionary to preach the good news, to tell how much the Lord has had mercy on him. What makes this even more contrasting is that the end uh, of chapter 5, if you begin chapter 6, Jesus, he ends up being rejected by all the people in his hometown. So it almost makes sense that his ministry is, is starting to spread beyond just his hometown, his local people. It's going much wider than this. 
Now, the man with the unclean spirit, he sees Jesus. He sees him from a distance and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. This man or the legion of demons inside of him immediately recognizes Jesus' power and authority. Something that the disciples only a short moment earlier couldn't figure out when he'd calmed the storm. In fact, this demon-possessed man, he even calls Jesus son of the most high God, which is a reference that both the Jewish people and the Gentiles used to show one God's absolute supremacy over all other gods. Only this time it's used in relation to Jesus. It seems as though this, this demon, he has zero problems identifying who Jesus is as well as the, the power and authority that he has. It's a very peculiar contrast to the disciples just a few moments earlier. Now, Jesus, he asks this man his name, and instead of a name, he's given a number. So he's been told legion. That's the name of the demon. In a nutshell, the word legion, it just means there are a lot of demons. Uh, The word legion is actually a military word that means an army of thousands of soldiers, 4,000, 5,000 plus. And when you consider that, the name is really quite chilling because, again, it highlights that the sheer number and power of these demons in the life of a single victim. Now, Jesus, without any long-winded uh, chants, doesn't use any incantations, he doesn't pull out his spell book, he doesn't use any special techniques or recipes or secret prayers or anything else. He simply speaks and the demons are expelled. He rebukes the wind and the waves. It's his word alone that has the power and the authority to drive out evil. Now, we can talk about the pigs uh, another time, but I know some of you, when you read that these pigs uh, ended up having the demons come to them and they ran off the cliff, 2,000 of them dying. I know we're a bit sensitive to that because we've grown up with things like Piglet, Porky Pig, Miss Piggy. Um, There's so many wonderful pig characters out there. When I grew up, Babe was, was the thing. Um, we love our pigs, and many of us love our bacon as well. So when we read about these pigs jumping off the cliff, it seems quite dramatic and, and sad. Now, there's a reason for it, but come and chat to me afterwards about it if you want to hear it, because I want us to not get distracted by uh, the pigs and miss the main point here. And that is that Jesus has all power and all authority, over the wind and the waves and over the very forces of evil itself. And just as his power and authority generated fear among the disciples, it now brings fear among the local people too. As I said earlier, they see the man they once knew as an unstoppable, ferocious animal now sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Jesus has an authority that can only come from God. In fact, if it wasn't clear enough by now, uh, Mark, he makes this very explicit. He says to the healed man, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord, uh, that is God, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus is saying, go tell them how much God has done for you and read what the man does. It says, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. 
Now, again, this isn't a surprise to us that Jesus is God. It's not a surprise to us that he carries all the authority of God with him. It's not a surprise that when Jesus acts, God acts. Yet I think what we so often miss today is what this means for our worship of Jesus. It pays to look closely at the reaction of these people who have just encountered God for themselves and see that instead of eliciting pure joy, their common reaction as Jesus unleashes his power is fear. And so I want to finish off today by touching very, very briefly on this topic of fear because I think it's so often misunderstood in the Christian life. Uh, there is an assumption that uh, when we're in Christ, our joy kind of removes any fear. In fact, if you were to, to flip open to 1 John 4.18, uh, he even says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And yet so often we have this almost contradictory stuff on the other side here that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 9. So what is it? Should we have fear or should we not? Well, to put it more plainly, one of those is a healthy fear and one is not. There's an irony in the fact that when you fear God in the right way, you don't actually have to fear God. When you fear God, you don't have to fear God. Let me unpack that. You see, the fear of punishment that John describes... It's a fear of someone when they are outside of Christ. It's a fear that everyone should have who will be judged by God and found guilty. When, like in today's passage, we we see the mightiness and the power and authority and holiness of God manifest in Jesus, the question is how could any sinner not be afraid? In fact, many, including Peter, when they first see some of these miracles from Jesus, when he first unleashes his power, their response to Jesus is to fall on their face and say, I'm a sinner, go from me. But once we understand this, once we understand our own sin and who we are in Jesus, this should lead to a different kind of fear, a healthy kind of fear. Healthy fear, it it doesn't find its motivation to worship God out of fear of punishment, Uh, We don't worship God out of fear because we think, if I don't do this right, he's going to send me to hell. Rather, this is a fear that's contained inside a relationship. It's a fear that comes from a place of tremendous love and respect, a place of love for our God, from a place of intimacy. It's like the fear that, that a child has for a good godly father. They desperately want to do the right thing, not fear of punishment, but because they deeply, deeply respect their father. Proper fear, it comes from a place of relationship and security and deep love. And when you have this kind of fear of God, you no longer have to fear God. In fact, I would go so far as to say that that healthy fear and joy in God, not only do they go together, I think they have to go together. If we don't fear God, we we will never find joy in God, for example, while living a life of active sin, of unrepentant sin. You'll never find joy in God while stuck in habitual sin. We do need a reverence of God, a healthy fear of God. 
We need a healthy fear of what Jesus ultimately has done for us. And so what we need to do is flee to Jesus. We need to find refuge in him, in his power and his strength, which he has shown for us in today's passage. We need to flee to him out of a healthy fear and reverence for who he really is. We need to flee to him ultimately as our refuge from sin and death. And I guarantee you that when you do this, you'll suddenly find joy and reassurance and hope. The very thing that you once feared living outside of Christ, well, this will drive you to a proper fear of God that leads to worship and joy. When you fear God, you don't have to fear God anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, into the world with all power and authority. Lord, we thank you that we have these eyewitnesses who recorded the stories for us of the raw emotion of the disciples in their time of fear and of the man you healed of many demons who begged to follow you. Father, help us to learn what it means to have a healthy fear of you. Help us to know you more and more, not only as our creator, but also as our redeemer, as our saviour. And may this help us live lives which give you your rightful place as Lord of all. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.